0: I hope this very cold Dickensian night finds you warm and warm sheltered because as we know, there has been an Arctic blast blowing across America and it is mighty cold. I live in the Peach State and 17, I think, was the low. 20 was the high. So, we're all dealing with some cold times. And I am fighting very hard my inner Ba Humbug. Fighting it very hard. Because this is my favorite season. Christmas is my favorite time of year outside of Halloween. So, um, so many things going on beyond the Arctic Blast we have the takeover, and now maybe releasing of the reins of Twitter. We have the January 6th committee's final, perhaps coup de grace on Trumpism. We have the midterms behind us. We have uh, Pelosi, you know, entrenched in history. We have all these things. And yet, guys, we're still here. And I believe very firmly we're going to cross into 2023 together, arm in arm. So so what's been on my mind has been true crime. I'm a lit head, dyed in the wool, and I was just, I think, in the shower or maybe driving to work. And I was thinking about the podcast and all the great literature. and it just dawned to me, you know, what about true crime? Some of your favorite podcasts have been of this genre, but you haven't really spoken about it on your own evaluation of literature and discussion of literature. You've only stuck to pretty much fiction and some social critique and um, scholarly cr- criticism, like, say, coming from Toni Morrison or, you know, other critical theorists. And I was like, Yeah. But what's out there? And I had to be really honest with myself about what I've read. So when I started really thinking about it and thinking about doing a podcast, I had read a sampling. I had read a sampling. So tonight, guys, as you get ready to carve your roast beast and put your little sauce and gravy on the final things, or maybe you're just wrapping presents right now. Before that magic hour when the kids finally close their eyes or your wife or husband or SO, whoever they may be, open their eyes for Christmas Day, I want to share with you some thoughts on true crime and some of the best works, not only by you know the sale of the book in question, but also by you know, um, critics and uh, theorists and people who study um, the impact of literature on society or how literature is really birthed from society, which comes first, the art, right? Or the moment that creates the artist. So uh, chicken or egg? Is it a culture producing a new artist who comes out with a new art? Or is the artist an avant-garde outlier bringing new consciousness to the society? I believe they kind of work hand in hand. Human history shows us there's no real one-off. There's no real isolated event because we're humans. And as different as we each are from each other, we share that human stain, that human trait of ingenuity and philosophy and discovery. So tonight, I'm going to talk about five works that I recommend you read, and you probably have if you are a true crime enthusiast, but if you have, because some of them are quite, I don't want to say old, but they've aged, and I just want to recommend these books for you, but I also want to talk about the culture which surrounds true crime, because it. Didn't really always exist. We know that Poe and you know Conan Doyle wrote some of the first mysteries, some of the um, still vaunted horror that's out there, and the detective genre is sort of the outlier of true crime. It comes from our real lived experiences in a sense, but true crime post WW Two, World War Two changed, and it became, in its early onset, it was for the male reader and viewer. The women on these covers, they called them sweats, because the woman was essentially being tortured, raped, somehow, in um dire circumstances, with the menacing male figure on these covers. Um... It involved kink and the punishment of the female body for her sexual exploration, right? Because remember, this is coming out of the war, premarital sex, and some of the mythos of of male-female roles were changing and shifting. And when the GIs got back, especially here in America, the women weren't the same. If they really had ever been these, you know, aproned, Primadonnas, i I you know the reality and the change probably happened hand in hand um, and so these men are coming back from the gallows in a sense um sixteen point five million American men fought in the big war, right um the average age of 26 and i was surprised by this because you know in vietnam the average age was 18 19 here we have almost 10 years older these men coming back so these are men who are men by all standards but who have seen really horrific things and according to my research 37% of these 16.5 million were Discharge because of psychological or um, psychoneurotic, as it was termed back then, illness, people, war is hell. So these true crime books and short stories and uh, vignettes were escapism that fed that kind of violent um new ethos and pathos this men had experienced away from their families, away from society. These were things that would not have been, you know, on the coffee table. Kind of like the Playboy magazine, it would have been secreted away, or at least in a male area. Maybe something his wife would not have even seen. But now we find that true crime... Horror, uh, you know, true horror podcasts, um, the listeners are female. Lifetime movies, I call them, you know, white women in danger movies. She finds out her husband's really a sicko. And um, so it shifted almost completely from a male eye as a reader and taker in of these types of um, works to a female being the object of the creative exercise and the consumer. And so we have this radical change. And it's not to me coincidental that it's coming after a war that saw a lot of carnage, a lot of, um, you know, some theorists call it the birth of the American serial killer. Men had gone to these war zone saw horrific things and it began to change the psychosis and the psychological well being of our country and our men and some couldn't let go of the bloodlusts or because of the violence were able to hide in plain sight after all if you're having blackouts and brownouts and um, finding a few bodies strewn you know, here or there, who's to say, right? And so police had their work cut out for them, determining is this a one-off, you know, a murder, or is this a result of some bombing and shelling, somebody who got caught up in a raid? Um, And we find that a lot of malevolent killers use the war to begin their hunting, right, and to cover their killings. And then we get to the 60s and 70s, the children of these, you know, GIs raised with fathers with secrets and hidden magazines with women being tortured and sweaty and open mouthed on the cover, giving way to its own steamy, sweaty <sighs> outcropping of violence. And so um, the first work that I'm going to speak of, and you, have, I'm sure you've heard of it, is In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I've read this twice, and I remember reading it enthralled. I'd never read anything like it. And maybe it's what catapulted me into... Um, You know, things like Forensic Files and um, Cold Case from A&E, those type of shows that begin to deconstruct and um, break down crime scenes and crime technology in the hunt for killer or killers. Um, But Capote's In Cold Blood was the first of its kind. Um, And not an absolute first, but it was the first of its kind to put forth a new way of dealing with crime. Capote wrote this as it was occurring. He'd heard about it. He went out to investigate. The trial of the killers was ongoing, and the book wasn't published until after that had been resolved. Um, And Capote, you know, they say 8,000 pages of notes on this killing in the Midwest Americana. And perhaps it is a hinge, changing door of the old America, somewhat innocent, closeted, pretending everything's okay, and a new America with the violence of the war, the Depression, the Dust Bowl, uh, segregation, Nazism, Hitler, Mussolini, all came home all came home and slammed into this new art form. Um, So not necessarily created by Capote, Capote, but certainly used by him and made large and relevant by him. This is one of the best selling, I think it's the second best selling true crime um, piece in history. And we're going to look at both number one and two. Well, this is the second one, but I think just as a lit head, the better written. Now, there are accusations that Capote took license. And now that I'm older and having read it, he certainly did. I don't think, and perhaps this is what makes true crime a little bit dangerous, is that the objectivity of the old school of the old school newspaper reporter who just reported the facts is somewhat blurred. Because even if I interview someone, I'm looking at their face, I'm listening to their voice, I'm wrapping my narrative around what they're saying. Does it support what I want? Does it not? Is it something I can leave on the floor? And so Capote had, you know, a large number of detractors who felt like he'd embellished he left things out, he'd um misquoted purposely, misquoted for literary effect. And so um it gives rise to a cri- criticism that um works like Capote stokes the violence, it milks it. Um and the word for it is, you know, porn violence. And you think about that word, go Google it. Porn being something that is explicit, gratuitous, false, falsely representing, you know, whatever it's representing. When we talk about porn in a sexual sense, of course, it's a false representation of sexual acts between um, humans. But when we're talking about in violence, it's a false representation of violent acts that we commit upon each other. And so Capote in... Being the first to really get wealthy, because he really had hoped to win the Pulitzer um, on this work, um, created a genre that is problematic. Because once we observe something, that's my dog, as the observer, we're changing things. We cannot help it. We cannot help it. And all of our reasoning and good intentions can sometimes be obscured by the very fact that we are watching and we are who we are. We bring to bear what we bring to bear. So the first one that I'd like to recommend, if you haven't read it, is Capote's In Cold Blood. And there have been, uh, I think, two good movies, one in the 60s, 70s, Which is pretty good. Um, I watched that one. I did not watch the one with Seymour Hoffman. Um, I'm not sure why. Let me take that back. I watched snippets of it. Especially his interview with the killers. Um, But I didn't find it as riveting. Maybe perhaps because. The modern lens. Was unlike the lens of the previous movie. Or maybe I'd already read it. Two times. And so was too well-steeped, I'm not sure. But the second movie, not poorly done by any means, just not as riveting. Because I think there was something austere and maybe even Hitchcockian in the black-and-white early version. So maybe that's it. It's closely related to the release of Psycho, other Hitchcock works, and then this In Cold Blood. Based on true events. Maybe that's why uh, it stands out and resonates more with me. But if you're a true crime lover and you haven't read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, go out and get it. Um, Google those terms. um, Porn violence. Also, Mark Seltzer, and you can find this online too, The social critic calls it shock, trauma, and the wound. It's this pouring over something shocking and traumatic and wounding to us, you know, as a, as a shared consciousness for the sake of prosperity. I mean, let's face it, Capote made lots of money off of In Cold Blood, the true story of the murder of the Clutter family. Um, and not, not apologetically, he did it with literary... Um, aspirations. You know, he's expecting a Pulitzer. So this is a man who he sat down to write, sat down to give that reader something to consume that perhaps they'd never consumed before. The second one in the true crime um, world is Helter Skelter. And if you listened, I began the podcast with the Beatles Helter Skelter because this is the Um, Victor Bugliosi and Gentry's take on the Manson family murders, and I read this, and so I was I was amazed as I was researching, you know, um, for this podcast that I read the top two best selling books of all time on true crime, you know, just coincidentally, just as a lit head, I didn't read it for any particular class; it was just consumption, right consuming what was available I found Helter Skelter dark riveting these were murders that had taken place in my mom's generation I remember her telling me about Sharon Tate, I think we were watching a movie which starred the actress and then um, I think maybe in that conversation with my mother was the first time I really heard of Charles Manson because these murders happened um, when I was a wee, wee kid. And I wouldn't have had any social consciousness or memory of them, um, except as they were replayed for a new audience, for a new era um, in later media. So, yeah, and my mom telling me about her horrific murder and the murder for her unborn child and, you know, the heiress and things like that. And reading about Manson and his family, and how this five, two, five, three delinquent spent most of his time in jail, unwanted, unloved um in the parlance of the early nineteen thirties, a waste person I mean by all by every account, and never having killed anyone himself, but setting these disaffected middle class white kids on a trajectory of horror um, to start a race war so that he could somehow be on top just boggles the mind This boggles the mind and um, you know Manson spent a lot of years Stoking his, nor- his notoriety, claiming his innocence and in that he never, you know, he didn't kill anyone. But um, I think for America, wow, oh, you're talking about the '60s and the hippie culture. You're talking about movie stars and heiresses. You're talking about, you know, Polanski, famous director. You're, you're what part of society did it not touch? And the whole idea of inciting a race war, and if you look at the insurrectionists on January 6th, if you look at, you know, the Proud Boys, and if you look at the Klan and all these other groups, nothing new under the sun, is there? Nothing new under the sun. So, Helter Skelter. And taking its name from uh, the Beatles song, which was a song revered by Charles Manson for its seemingly, or in his mind, apocalyptic, um, disjointed, futuristic breakdown of culture. And I'm not sure... I think Manson himself recognized his incapacity to be a decent human being. Anyone who tells you, don't let me out. Don't let me out of this hellhole ought to be listened to. Because maybe he saw himself this arcing to a darker and darker and darker persona. And some of his adherents, as we know, have died in prison. Um, And, you know, he killed a lot of unnamed people, too. I mean, we we think Sharon Tate, but um, some of his first, first victims, of course, were ordinary people who got caught up in his web from whom he wanted something, property, money, um, they were threatening him as far as their prestige or good looks. All the things. All the things. So Helter Skelter. And In Cold Blood being the top two um, best-selling true crime. Helter Skelter being number one. In Cold Blood being number two crime uh, literature of all time. But I want to take a little bit of shift and recommend Night by Elie Wiesel. Now, I know you're saying, "Well, oh, I know Night. It, it's not really true crime. But it is. It is. Eli Wiesel, in this instance, is a first-hand narrator of true crimes against the Jewish people. And by extension, crimes against humanity. Based on real events, real crimes of Hitler's Third Reich. And some of the. And I, I guess it's well placed because it's WW2, right? One of its most horrific wars in recent human history and its shaping of our concept of violence and the things we could do to other bodies comes from hitler and and the german armies and other complicit armies wreaking havoc first on its own citizens first on its own citizens, euthanizing the mentally um, disturbed, the um, mentally diminished in their eyes, handicapped gays, starting with them first and then reaching their talons for Jews and Poles and homosexuals and gypsies and the list was endless. So This type of literature has its own genre subcategories called Holocaust literature. But I, I don't want us to forget that these are crimes written by the persons who were the victims. And was particularly painful if you if you're standing now in our historical times and seeing the rise of neo-nazism and you know representatives who are in, in the US Congress going to places where Hitler stood to honor Hitler and not to honor our GIs who were changed and i'm just going to say mentally mentally incapacitated by what they witnessed and committed right because you're killing on both sides um and to see it, that we've forgotten the cost. We've forgotten the cost. And we ought to read works like Knight in the Diary of Anne Frank to remind us that we don't really have to make up horror stories. If you read anything about Nazi Germany, There it is. I I can't think of anything more horrific. That's why maybe true crime is so digestible in a sense, because we recognize that uh, at any time we could also be victims, right? You think about a Ted Bundy, a Dahmer. The people they encountered were everyday normal people going about their business, suddenly ensnared in a trap by a murderous spider who never had any good intentions. You know, whatever good Bundy, Dahmer, Gacy, whatever good they did is, is laid waste by their complete malevolence and black besmirching <laughs> in human history. So third on my list as true crime is to read Night by Eli Wiesel as he discusses his experience surviving in the death camps. And there are actual pictures of him in the death camps. And the fact that people would try now to say it's a it's a work of the Jewish imagination is disgusting to me. The same people who say slavery was benign servitude. It's disgusting. Okay, I gotta move on. Number four Rosewood, the full story, written by Gary Monroe. The, and there are lots of uh, books on this particular horrific event in 1923 the annihilation of a predominantly black town in Florida. So I'm probably gonna have to do a podcast on this. The claim of rape. White anger and mob violence. Official toll: sixty-eight to dead. Unofficial toll: twenty-seven to a hundred and fifty dead. The eyewitness accounts of stepping over bodies after this atrocity, of mass burials, of um, a town that was laid waste to and never returned. Now in Florida, it's a historical site because of the work of people like Mr. Monroe and his evidence gathering and his you know, getting witness statements before they died. And so Tulsa is just one of many events where white mob violence in really horrific fashion over something as random as a woman saying she was raped by some traveler and laying waste to this town, to men, women, and children who had no, you know, a rape, whether actionable or not, whether real or not, is not the responsibility of an entire community. In the black community, it is and has been. Whether real or imagined, somehow the whole, the entire community has to pay for these real or imagined crimes. As Ida B. Wells has has let us know, mostly imagined. Mostly imagined. And really has to do with the cyclical bloodletting of white culture, of their rage, of their control, of their supremacy as it engages with black bodies who are outside of the law, outside of protection, outside of legal recompense, outside of voice. And so if you want to read about unfortunately another Tulsa, Rosewood, the full story, and I just want to point out that from you know eighteen thirty to nineteen forty one four thousand people actually forty five hundred people plus lynched eighty two percent of those African American. This is a crime that has a particular victim, a particular target and almost no punitive consequence. These white people, men, women, and children who committed these acts, went home to live out their lives. And the act was buried, the bodies were buried, um, and just a whisper in history. So, And this is why, to me, it's dangerous to listen to people who are saying, let's defeat critical race theory, let's defeat woke culture. What they're really asking you to co-sign, what they're really asking you to do is silence the voice of the oppressed. Anytime someone is asking you to do that, whether it's banning *Night*, banning the Diary of Anne Frank, banning the study of Rosewood and Tulsa and systematic racism. They're asking you to side with the oppressor. And a person of decency, of ethics, of good conscience, a so-called Christian will never ever allow themselves, even mentally, to be on the side of the oppressor. So my number four, once again, was Rosewood. My fifth and i i want to give a shout out to um a series i've been watching called three pines with uh alfred molina who does his ethos as his character of this chief um in a police department is so hauntingly beautiful because Here's a cop who is compassionate, who's gotten into police work for all the right reasons and who is being challenged by the culture and the work that he's doing to still be decent and good. And I think when we talk about blue lives matter, of course they matter, but the good cop suffers, right? The good cop suffers. Um, because to be a good cop is to be one who is compassionate and caring. But the understory, the subtext of this series is missing women, indigenous women and girls. And even before I started watching this, I just been reading about, because I guess I am a true crime enthusiast, about missing women all over the world, missing women in Asia, Africa, uh, Europe. Eastern Europe, South America, America, Canada, the number of missing women and girls, black women who just I'm going to get milk and are never seen from. And the particular book that I'm going to recommend is called Highway of Tears by Jessica McDermott. M-C-D-I-A-R-M-I-N-D. And she says that. Indigenous women are often overpoliced but underprotected, overpoliced and underprotected. And that stuck with me because all victims of crime well, the majority victims of crime fall into this category of being missing before they're missing, twice missing. And you'll see this as you read about some of the literature of missing women, twice missing. Their voice is missing in their culture and communities. Definitely outside of their culture and communities. And then when they go missing, when the physical body disappears or is annihilated, missing again. And so this book, Highway of Tears, speaks particularly to a stretch of highway in Canada, about 450 miles long, where a number of Indigenous women and girls have gone missing or have been killed outright. Bodies found, killed, rape, signs of strangulation, um, torture, um, purposely ran over by trucks. This particular stretch of road is um, not well developed, sparsely traveled. And so when these women you know, hitchhike because they don't have access to cars, Uber, they don't have access to money to autonomy, they're putting their risk you know they're putting their life at risk literally, just to go get groceries, just to go meet a friend. The things that in our urban society um, seems quite normal, but then I thought about it <clears throat> that's no safe place for women. You walk to your car, you've been taught to hold your keys a certain way, make a little bit of noise. You've been taught to maybe even not jog at night. Uh, Be careful what you wear. This excitement to male violence that is, you know, you can't predict it. There's no safety. There's nothing that you can do against somebody who wants to take your life. And maybe that's why the Lifetime movies, the true crime fans are just trying to assuage the certain knowledge that any of us, especially female and children, can be victims. We think about Dahmer and his basically teen victims, Gacy, his teen victims. There's a predator out there. These victims are young men, women, and children. So, once again, my last recommendation is Highway of Tears. And some of the stats on missing women of From indigenous cultures, it's quite, I mean, the numbers are just quite staggering. 7% of the population, but 40% of the missing? Just like with African Americans, 4,500 murdered, lynched, 82% African American. The victimology is clear. What we need to work on is finding the perpetrators and bringing justice to these women who've gone missing. It'd be nice to live in a world someday where women and girls and young boys and young children don't have to take precautions to safeguard their life in the manner that we have to do. And to educate a police force In these areas, in America and Canada especially, where Indigenous women and girls are going missing, about violence that they face. And let's be honest, a lot of it, the majority of it, most of it, is people they know. They're being killed by the men in their communities. The young missing girls in Asia are being sold by their fathers and uncles and brothers. In Eastern Europe, they're being sold. Or, as sometimes happens, kidnapped off the very streets and sold. So, I went a little long tonight and I regret having done this right before Christmas. But it was also on my mind. And as you research and read, please get back with me. Give me some of your thoughts about porn violence, about this culture coming out of WW2 in particular, but also the First World War. And I really believe we study each war. We'd find a spate and a bursting of a particular horrific violence. I'm sure after Genghis Khan came through, there was a spate of horrific violence and murder and mayhem. Maybe it's our human cyclical bloodlet. I, you know, that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> to talk about the ways that we render each other beast whether it's a family in the Midwest shot and killed, whether it's superstars like Sharon Tate, whether it's an entire ethnicity, race of people, as in the Holocaust, whether it's targeted victimization of a particular subset to have control and authority over them, as in Rosewood and Tulsa, or where there's missing indigenous women and girls and girls all over the place and children all over the world who are victims, primarily to men. Maybe we need to talk about the violence of male culture, go back and pull out those sweats, those true crime magazines of the old days and figure out how we could fix the psychology there. Thank you for joining me tonight. You have been listening to Late Night with White, and I'm your host, C.D. White. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I would definitely see you in the new year. Please stay warm. Reach out to your family, older people, and be sure that they're warm. I know where I am. There are power outages, and I'm hoping people are at hotels. I know the Red Cross is on it. Thank God for people who do that. But and you know, 15-degree weather, um, it's a sad day for your electric company to have failed you. And I know that the power systems are working very hard to get that power back on for those who need it. Thank you for listening, and good night.